It was an early spring morning, and I was anxious to see what winter had done to my fitness. And I got my bike out and got it all ready to go, and I wanted to find out whether I had fallen a long ways from what my records or my times were on my bike. I had one of those computerized uh, gadgets on my bike. And to my surprise, after I got back from my first bike ride of the, of the spring, my average speed was better than it had ever been. Distance travel was better than when I stopped riding the autumn before. It's amazing what a layover will do. You know, being a couch potato, it actually can, can help you out a lot. Being a couch potato is not overrated. I, I, I was hitting marks that I had never hit before. And in my euphoria, I walked into the house only to realize that I had reset the battery on my computer and I had calibrated things just wrong enough to make it look like I and Lance Armstrong were in the same league with each other. <laughs> you know, it all depends on how you calibrate things, doesn't it? I can take the bike computer and can say, it's a computer, it knows what it's saying, I am Lance Armstrong. Or I can go back and I can say, you know, how, how did I configure the settings so that I actually looked better than I was. That can happen, and we can use it as evidence of fitness that makes us feel particularly good about ourselves. And in the book of Galatians, Paul is saying, you know, that can happen in the Christian life as well, too. If you calibrate things just right, if you set things up in such a way, you can make yourself look really good. And it's all a lie. And so that's what he's addressing here, is he's talking to this group of people that have calibrated Christianity, what it means to be devout, what it means to be pious, in ways that turn out to be really good for them, but the results of it don't lead to anything that would cause someone to be grateful that they had done it. You see, if I calibrate my bike well enough and I look like I'm Lance Armstrong, just give it a few weeks and I'll discover there's something wrong because I'm doing all of that stuff and I'm still not really Lance Armstrong. And so that's what Paul is talking about here in Galatians chapter 5. Because, not because he wants to knock us down, but because he wants us to actually calibrate our life in such a way that we can achieve the very things we long to have as aspects of our life that are true and are good. The measurements that were widely embraced are measurements that the people at the Church of Galatians were tending to embrace. How do you calibrate piety? Circumcision? Check. Know the law? Check. Keep the law? Mostly. Perfect attendance? Better than Thomas, he missed at least one meeting we know of. Tithing? I think I give more than Judas does. Whatever it might be, what are the measures that indicate devotion, Christian? Last week we illustrated the trajectory of a person who values the rules and Andrew stood up here and was that person for us to say, I am going to be as good as I possibly can. And then there was Nate, who was an illustration of a person who says, I'm, I'm not going to be that person. I, 
I'm going to actually be the person that lets the Spirit of the living God impact my life. And Paul wants to say to us that if you choose the second, your life will go in extraordinary directions, never even possible for the person that chooses the first. And so that's what we're talking about here, to be a person who decides to let the Spirit of the living God reside in their life. So practically speaking, what does that look like? And that's what Paul gets to in Galatians chapter 5. You'll notice that there are two lists here, actually, that we read. The first is found in verses 19 through 21. It's a list of acts of the sinful nature. If we were to put a title on it, we would put that title on verse 19, 20, and 21. The acts of the flesh or the acts of the sinful nature. And then we see following that a second list, and it's in verses 22 and 23. And if we were to put a title on that, we would title it The Fruits of the Spirit. So we actually get to see what it looks like when a person invites the Spirit of the living God to reside in their life. Now, why does Paul mention the acts of the sinful nature first? I think it's because it's important for us to notice them, but it was important for Paul to actually declare them because people were wondering if they even mattered to Paul. You know, you, you, you choose Andrew and you reject this person who's just trying to comply with every bit of righteousness and rule-keeping they possibly can, and Paul just throws that person out as a means of accomplishing what God's want, God wants in your life. And then you just choose this person who just simply says, I'm going to live by the Spirit and follow the Spirit. One would need to know whether Paul was actually serious about the aspirations of Andrew. Does the moral code, does, does living a righteous life even matter to you? And so Paul pulls out this list and he reiterates that morality matters and particularly he pays attention to the things that, that matter for him and for everyone. Let's be clear on this, Paul is saying. What we all agree on is the same thing. There are certain things that ruin lives and destroy the people that we were created to be. It's true. There are things that will ruin a life. In verse 19, it says, the acts of the flesh are obvious. And he's essentially saying this, all of us already know what's evil. And they did. The people that Paul was speaking to, they knew of it. In fact, pagan philosophers of that day, they had all published lists of vices. It was a popular and well-known aspect of the culture. We all know what ruins a life. And here we see a representative sampling of some of those acts of the sinful nature. You can actually even see it in verse 21. It goes in, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. This isn't a complete list. But it's just an acknowledgement of there are things, and here are some of them, a representative sampling that define what happens to a life when moral righteousness and, and virtue isn't aspired to. And so he lists the acts of the sinful nature. There are basically four categories here, and this isn't his major point, and it won't be ours either, but it's important for us to notice them. They're, there are four categories here that we see in this batch of, of acts. The first is a person who makes a choice to please themselves. He's talking here, reference points, to sexual behaviors outside of the covenant of marriage. Barclay said about the Greco-Roman world that the sexual life of the Greco-Roman world in the first century was a lawless chaos. There were all sorts of ways that people would express themselves and 
would choose to live out their, their sexuality. It was basically this sense. I get to decide what I do with my body. Uh, the sense of the overriding purpose of a person's body was to gain pleasure from the expression of it. And Paul says, we know that ruins a life. Just, just, just watch that one. There's a sense that uh, if our standard is whatever appeals to you, whatever makes you happy, rather than whatever strengthens family and bonds and marriages and benefits society and actually leads to human flourishing, if you choose the first, it will ruin lives. If you choose the second, it actually builds a society and a family. Marriage is not permission for recreational activity. It's actually meant to be a tool for recreation, to be a restoration of the world as it was meant to be, to be a place, environment in which kids can grow up and learn and observe and, and, and thrive. And for husband and wife to say, we're not here for ourselves. We're here together because God has a purpose for us, an invitation for us to impact the world to recreate the world as it was intended to be. So that's the first choice. It's essentially saying, I am going to live my life in such a way that I please myself. The second category we see here is a person who makes a choice to chase fantasies here. Religious idolatry is the category, really. To worship created things rather than the creator. The word witchcraft here, actually, that Greek word is actually used in English for pharmacy. It has to do with drugs that can poison or can captivate us. Tolkien describes this in The Lord of the Rings. It's Gollum's fixation with that ring, my precious, my precious. And he worships it. He worships a thing and it captivates him and it's idolatry for him and it's hope, something that he he must have and dreams about maintaining. It's to chase fantasies. We want to possess things, to own them rather than to be owned by him. Anything less than devotion to Christ will disappoint. And so God pays attention to these, to these fantasies that we pursue that will only lead to disappointment. And then there's a third category that we see here, and it's a category of using people, a whole category of social conflict, hatred and discord, envy, a predatory regard for others. What can I get from them? In verse 15 and verse 26, it talks about devouring others. I consume them for my own needs. I mentioned a conversation last week that I was having with a young man, and he was talking about a business arrangement he had, a, guy he knew that was uh, actively involved in church and all kinds of other things and engaged in a business practice where he established an organization that had on the internet a money-back guarantee and a commitment that once you made it, uh, you would, it would come out of your credit card every month after that. But there was a money-back guarantee. And about the business, my friend said, and then there's a call center. And in the call center, they're specifically trained to never give back money. That's how they're trained. And this was just creating all sorts of strife and dissonance for him because it just seemed so wrong. 
And Paul says, yeah, it is, because it is. That's an act of the sinful nature. I'm going to make promises to you, and then I'm going to, I'm going to make sure that our agreement only benefits me. You see, we can walk into these things, and Paul was acknowledging, I know it, we all know it. Those are acts of the sinful nature, and they come in all varieties, and they create social conflict. And there's a fourth category that we see here, and it's an ignorance of reality, a choice to just be blind to what's true. It's about drunkenness and orgies. This reckless pursuit of self-gratification, of, of self-medication, really. I will do anything, I will consume anything that prevents me from having to, having to deal with what's really true. I want to ignore reality. I want to be blind to it. I want to medicate myself in such a way that I just can close my eyes and it will all go away. And Paul says that that choice to not come face to face with face to face with the realities in your life, that's a choice of the sinful nature, and it will lead to ruin. So these are the categories that Paul was talking about here. These are acts of the sinful nature. And essentially you could retitle those verses four ways to ruin your life. It ruins one's life to live as you please, to chase fantasies, to use others, and to ignore reality. Four ways to ruin your life. Now, here's the thing about this list. Everybody agrees that they're bad. We would all say that, wouldn't we? Who wants to ruin their life? And everyone that Paul was writing to in the culture that he was talking to, everyone knew that these things were bad. But here was a difficulty. For the law-abiding community, they thought the solution was to be law-abiding. That's the way we handle it. So, so we say, gee, those are really bad things. And we act like they're bad. And we become a community that knows what ruins a life. And, and we say out loud, we're against those things. And so then we measure our success by external compliance or whatever compliance we can manage and expressions of the importance of not going down those pathways. But the problem with that external compliance is that oftentimes, and we know it, it's happened in our lives, it's happened in the lives of people around us, is it still doesn't manage to save the heart. There's still that heart inside that is devastated either by the inability to comply by those standards or the demand that I must comply by those standards in order to be worthwhile to God or to anyone else. You see, it ruins a life. So the content here is not surprising. It's just the content, context that's surprising. And here's the context. The context is Paul is offering a solution that the religious moralist would have never considered as possible. Don't see as a solution an ardent need and desire to repress your urges. Consider this. Consider all of these things in the context of a God who wants to gift you with the Holy Spirit. Consider that. In the midst of all of the things focused on ruining my life, I can actually invite into my life the spirit of the living God. It is not repress your urges. It is receive the Holy Spirit. <laughs> That's it. 
And the religious moralists say, that never entered my mind before. And Paul was saying to his Christian community, make sure he enters our life together and as individuals as well. There are four ways to ruin your life. There is one way to live your life the way it was designed to be. And that is to invite in the Spirit. To invite in the Spirit of the living God. Last week I used as a reference point someone and I said to my friend, that person's not a Christian. I didn't necessarily mean that. I meant that those expressions, those things that were happening, those choices that were made, those aren't evidences of Christianity. That a person walks into a church with nice clothes on and, and listens to the right kind of music and says the right kind of stuff. No, no. The, the display of Christianity is the display of the nature of Christ. It is what the Holy Spirit does. Is a Christian really the one who says they are? Is a Christian really the one who says they're against destructive behavior? Is a Christian really the one who doesn't want to ruin their life? Is a Christian really the one who has this continual battle, constant battle with the sinful nature? I mean, it doesn't seem to you to be just a cruel thing for God to come along and just kind of plant on you a list of obligations that you know and he knows you have no capacity to be able to manage or endure. Is that really what it is? That you've embraced a list of rules? Is that really it? And Paul says, that's not it. It's that you embrace the spirit of the living God. Those who receive the Spirit experience a moral transformation by the directive power of the Holy Spirit. Those not transformed by the power of the Spirit are characterized by expressions of the sinful nature relentlessly and repeatedly. So what does occur when the Holy Spirit comes into a person's life? Paul says it's right there in verse 22 and 23. Our life bears fruit. Your life becomes a fruit-bearing life. It emerges from inside of you and spills out from you into your life and the lives of those around you. The fruit of the Spirit is, first of all, love. Now, in this list, all of the other moral qualities here listed are definitions of love, and they flow from love. Love is it. The fruit of the Spirit is love. And what flows from that love and what expresses that love are all of the things that come after it. Joy. Joy is the kind of joy that comes as a result of, he of, of healthy relationships. Peace. Another thing found in harmonious relationships. Forbearance or patience. It's the opposite of the fits of rage that he's already talked about. Kindness and goodness, actions of compassion that spill out of our heart. Faithfulness, it's this, it's this loyalty that will be there no matter what it costs me. I will be faithful, I don't care what it costs. I am here and I am here forever. Gentleness, it's the opposite of self-ambition. Self-control is the opposite of self-indulgence. You see, 
these are the character traits of what happens when the Holy Spirit comes inside of a life. Paul's not establishing here a new set of specific codes to replace the law codes. He's providing an objective basis for evaluation. So we can determine whether we are living lives that are gratifying the desires of the sinful nature or living by the Holy Spirit. It's actually means by which we can calibrate what direction we're going in our life. Am I living in battles with the sinful nature or am I discovering the moral transformation that comes not because I'm particularly good but because he's present in my life? And that's what Paul is calling us to. If there was, if there was no evidence of moral transformation, then there's no basis for claiming the presence of the Spirit. And if there's no basis for claiming the presence of the Spirit, there's therefore no basis for claiming that one has been justified by faith. And if they have not experienced justification by faith, then of course they would not inherit the kingdom of God. But this isn't a rule for it. It's just a description of the trajectory one has made uh, determined with their life. One follows the other. In really theological terms, I'm going to throw out a couple $20 theological words. There's the word sanctification, which means, really, essentially moral transformation, to be sanctified, to be purified, and it's something that hap- begins and happens progressively over the course of a life. And then there's justification, is this, is this one-time declaration by God that we have been justified. It's, it's like the judge says out loud, not guilty, and, and, it, and it means everything. Someone has said a good way to remember what the word justification means is this, just as if I never sinned. So there's sanctification and there's justification. And sanctification, moral transformation, is not the means of justification, but it is the inevitable right result of justification. Moral transformation isn't the means of God saying, I'm okay. But when God justifies me, the inevitable result of him justifying me is to change me. And so I can look at that computer, whatever that indicator is, and I can just watch what God is doing in my life because he's God. Because he's God. God does a work. And I find in myself love and kindness and self-control and endurance and faithfulness, it progressively builds because God does a work. The first work he does is he justifies me. He forgives my sin. He washes me clean. The second work he does is he transforms me because he lives within me. So how do you measure or calibrate a moral transformation? There will be fruit. You can watch it happen. And so what does Paul say we do? What does that look like? Well, he uses all of these pictures here. In verse 16, he talks about to walk by the Spirit. In verse 18, he says to be led by the Spirit. In verse 25, he says 
to keep in step with the Spirit. I love the verse that uh, Sarah and Kim had for grace from Colossians chapter 1. Their prayer is that, Sir, that grace would live a life um, uh, that, that through the Spirit gives life. It's just a, it's just a powerful piece and, and her hope that, that grace actually embraces a life that is characterized by the transformation that comes from the Holy Spirit. So the last thing I want to talk about is just some really practical ways for you and I to take a walk. To take a walk by the Holy Spirit. And there are aspects of walking in the Holy Spirit. There are really four aspects of this. The third is the re- the fourth is the result. It won't be any surprise. But the first is this. It is to choose spiritual life. To be, to be given spiritual life. I come alive because the Spirit of the living God is in me. This is the invitation that Jesus had for his disciples. You go to Mark chapter 1. First thing that Jesus is described as saying in Mark chapter 1 is saying the kingdom of God is near. Repent. It, mean, it means to, to, you're walking your own way, your, your, your own trajectory, whether it's moral self-righteousness or ten, you know, desire to comply or, or rejection of anybody else or whatever that path looks like. And to repent literally means to turn around. And I'm going to walk towards Jesus. I'm going to walk with Jesus in its spiritual life. It's not just pressing I like Jesus on my Facebook page. It's it's saying to Jesus, I'm yours. To repent, Jesus says, to believe and to follow. Right there in Mark chapter 1. To repent, to believe, and to follow. And what begins is something that is called spiritual life. We are made alive, Jesus says. We were dead and now we're alive. Step one of walking in the Spirit is to choose to trust the Lord Jesus Christ. There's spiritual life and then there's something that's described as spiritual gifts. It's a means by which we discover what God has for us. We have a class here at Hillcrest called Discover Your Design to find out what, how did God make me uniquely and what does it mean to live in those spiritual gifts. And I discover that when I live in those spiritual gifts, I discover that what flows out of that are the things that God made for me to enjoy, the fruit of the Spirit. You talk to the people that are involved with Vacation Bible School and many of them are there not because they feel like they ought to be there but because they feel like God has given them gifts there. A person walks into that room and discovers kids and discover that what comes out of them is, is compassion and tenderness and gentleness because a person decided to live out their spiritual giftedness, not just simply as something I have to do for the church, but as a means of walking by the Spirit and discovering that what is coming out of it, what is flowing out of it, are the fruits of the Spirit. So there's spiritual life, there's spiritual gifts, and then there are spiritual disciplines. These are not demands that are made. Spiritual disciplines are intended to be tools, not goals. That, I think, is the problem with them so oftentimes, is that we treat them like goals. Did I get up and read my Bible today? Check. Did I spend a day fasting this week? Check. 
Did I spend time in prayer? Check. And we use them as goals. They're not intended to be goals. They're intended to be tools out of which we discover things about God and he builds into our life. They're intended to be tools that God uses to cause us to reflect, to focus our attention, to help us to gain insights, to hear the Spirit's promptings. There is spiritual life, there are spiritual gifts, there are spiritual disciplines. And all of those things result in spiritual fruitfulness. Spiritual life, walk in step with the Spirit. Spiritual gifts, walk in step with the Spirit. Spiritual disciplines, walk in step with the Spirit. And the result of it is spiritual fruitfulness. It just happens. And God says, that's what it means to live out the Christian life. There is a um, contest going around in just about every several, twice a year about, uh, someone wins the world's largest pumpkin award. And it's most recently been, you can see, this is Benny Meyer in Europe. This is 2,323-pound pumpkin. Can you believe that? And you say, that's just an absolute aberration. It's not. Look at the runners-up. You know, man, they're, they're, you think, that they're, that, that's just one-of-a-kind pumpkin. It's not. They're creating one-ton pumpkins all over the world right now. Look on Google. You can just see them, see them, and you say, oh, that's just an aberration. It's not an aberration. You know what the common entity is? They all use the same seed. They all use the same seed. And they're a group of people that have decided to cultivate the seed that they have. Every single one of us, if we've invited Christ into our life, we have the same seed. It's not an aberration to grow into spiritual fruitfulness. It just happens if you and I decide to cultivate our walk with the Lord. So what will you do first? What's the first step you will take to cultivate the spirit of living God in your life? Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Even more than that, thank you for what it says, God. That uh, you have gifted us with this extraordinary gift of your presence and your power and your transformational impact in our lives lord i pray that you would help us to to embrace that and to cultivate that as we live out our life this week in jesus name we pray amen